Then over the next year, so now three, I'm on the stock for two years, the stock basically goes up to $26. And I make a celebratory dance. I just doubled my money and I sell. And the reason I did this is because I was so exhausted. I was so exhausted owning the stock. And that's why I sold. Today, the stock is at $128. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. But to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. That mission has led me to create the Become a Better Investor community. In the community, you get access to our global asset allocation strategies and stock portfolios, our investment research weekly live sessions, and the risk reduction lessons I've learned from more than 500 guests. Go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your exclusive podcast listener lifetime. Discount, fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here with featured guests, Vitaly Katzen-Nelson. Vitaly, are you ready to join the mission? Absolutely. <laughs> Something tells me we're going to have a great episode today. I'm really looking forward to it. And I want to introduce you to the audience. Vitaly was born in Murmansk, USSR and immigrated to the United States with his family in 1991. After joining Denver-based value investment firm IMA in 1997, Vitaly became CIO in 2007 and CEO in 2012. Vitaly has written two books on investing and is an award-winning writer. Known for his uncommon common sense, Forbes magazine called him the new Benjamin Graham. He's written for publications including Financial Times, Barron's Institutional Investor, and Foreign Policy. His articles are also published on his website, Contrarian Edge, and in audio format on his intellectual investor podcast. Vitaly lives in Denver with his wife and three kids, where he loves to read, listen to classical music, play chess, and write about life, investing, and music. Soul in the Game is his third book and his first non-investing book. Vitaly, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you bring to this wonderful world. Well. It depends on the constituency. So for my clients, which is just 350 families, I bring, I guess my goal is to produce some good returns while minimizing the volatility of their blood pressure. So that's, <laughs> that, you know, and, I, and you know, my goal is to make their life better, right? You know, because these people come to me and give me, they turn to me their life savings and say, Dali, that's all we got. Please don't screw it up. So I think that's my goal to enrich them financially. To my family, I think I, you know, Valia Brin has been a, you know, trying to be a good husband for my wife and a good father to my children and for my friends to be a good friend. And for the rest of the world, I, I think soul in the game is my finest contribution so far or the most important contribution so far. So finest is that somebody else to decide that, but that's probably my most important contribution. And, you know, and, and I you know, also, through my articles, I think I try to educate people about investing life in classical music. So I, you know, that's, that's my kind of, kind of contribution to the world. And it 
kind of interesting to hear you say that because I know I've subscribed to your email and, and you know, have seen your articles over the years. And I think you've made a huge contribution there, not only to investing, but as you say, to music, to art, you know, to all the different things that you like to explore. So it's kind of interesting to hear you say that this latest book is actually where you think, you know, you've got the biggest contribution. Maybe you can just tell the audience a little bit about what they should expect when they read this book. That's a good question. Difficult to answer. What they can expect, this is the book where I downloaded basically kind of most of the wisdom I got. So I, I put every ounce of my soul into it. And in the book, I discuss my journey of coming to the United States from Russia. Uh, actually, which I, I used to like, to, I used to say from Russia, now I say from USSR because I'm embarrassed <laughs> for Russia right now. Then, you know, I talk about classical music composers. I talk about parenting. I talk about creativity, a topic that fascinates me. I talk about meditation, about self-improvement, about stoic philosophy, about classical music composers. So somehow all these topics, not so neatly, but do align and lend themselves you know, into a book. And my goal you know, when I was writing this book was just to make the world just a little bit better. You know, and I'll be honest, in all honesty, Andrew, I say that was probably the most altruistic endeavor I ever had in my life because it doesn't matter for me financially what the book does. If it becomes the next Harry Potter, my life is not going to change. But I just want people to read the book and I want to make their life a little bit better. And the feedback I received so far you know, people wrote to me saying, you know, thank me because I have had that kind of impact. So that's, yeah. Exciting. Well, I'll have the link in the show notes so folks can get it and get into it. You know, one other thing that's interesting about you and myself is that we both got on a plane in about 1991, 1992 and flew far away from home and never went back. I flew from, originally I was in Ohio then I, in about 1985 or 1986, I moved from Ohio to California. And then I moved from California to the Thailand in 1992. What's kind of interesting is like that was the beginning of kind of the hollowing out of manufacturing in Midwest America. And it's like it was all the jobs were shifting to Asia. And that's where I wanted to, I wanted to try a different life. I wouldn't say that I was unhappy with the U.S., but there were some things I didn't like, and I just thought, Asia's rising. I want to go see if I can survive there. And we also have another commonality in that we both kind of found CFA as something interesting that grounded me. Here I was in Thailand, and I was able to get involved with CFA in Asia, which really added a lot to my career, to my relationships and friendships. What was it, you know, what has your experience been about making that move and why did you never go back or why did you, you know, never go to another, also to another state? You know, you went to one place, like I went to Bangkok and I never moved. Interesting. So, well, we left Russia because at the time Soviet Union was falling apart and you had no idea how the cards are going to fall. You know, it could have been complete chaos and civil war, who knows? And I never regretted the decision. We did go back once. I went there for about a week in 2008, I think. And after that visit, I realized how lucky I am to be in the United States. But why we were, so there's an interesting story here. So Murmansk, 
if you look at the, at the map of Russia, you look on the left and you go high, go higher, and then if you go higher again, you basically get Murmansk is above Arctic Circle. And uh, so during the winter time, there are basically months where you're not going to see much sun at all. Now, if I moved from Murmansk to Seattle, it would have been a huge upgrade by amount of sunlight I would have received, right? But I didn't. I moved to Denver, which is probably one of the sunniest cities in the United States. So the contrast between Murmansk and Denver is, like at least, you know, especially when it comes to sunlight, is absolutely incredible. And uh, it's a wonderful city. The weather is terrific. I just absolutely love it. And it's located in the middle of the United States. It takes me three hours to get to New York, two hours to get to California. Yeah. So I, it's, yeah, so I love it here. Let me talk about CFA a little bit. Actually, yeah. you, made, you mentioned it. I, I have a lot of complex and conflicted feelings about it. But one thing I realized, CFA is incredibly important if you live outside of the United States, especially if you live in, outside of the United States. Here's why. Because if you go to a business school in the United States, you more or less know the education level of education you know you, you get if i'm hiring somebody who went to a university in kiev or university in bangkok i have no idea the level of education they have and i actually i came to this realization about four months ago i hired an analyst for my firm in kiev and he had a, he has a cfa and i tell you that i tell you it's him having a cfa was like a huge, very important to me because I knew exactly what you knew. I knew how much he knows about, you know, US GAAP, what European account stands, et cetera. So that made that hiring decision so much easier. Uh, you know, that made that hiring decision so much easier anyway. So just, that's, you know, my biggest problem with CFA, I think they spent too much time on uh, modern portfolio theory, or at least they used to when I, you know, when I took it. And I would argue studying ethics is important. It's very important, don't get me wrong, but it should not be, 15, 20% of the curriculum. That's, that's <laughs> my, that's, so I, I, have my, I have my own beef with them. But again, it's, I think it's the, if you live outside of the United States, it becomes a very important designation. It's a great point. I would argue that the ethics actually becomes more important as you look outside the United States also. And maybe when, you're right. Yeah. When I, one of the things I, I have a few businesses, a couple businesses in Thailand, one of them was a factory that we've operated now for almost 28 years. And I can say that we have basically not had to deal with corruption in Thailand. And that's pretty rare. I mean, if you think about, I don't know, you know, if I went to Russia and started a factory, I could imagine. If I went to China and started a factory, if I went to Indonesia, I may have to deal with corruption. But Thailand is pretty impressive in the sense that we haven't had to deal much with corruption. But what I liked about CFA as I was interacting with other CFA charter holders around Asia is that I could talk to them about my ethics and following the CFA code of ethics. And that just meant that, you know, I knew that they were trained to a certain level of ethics, that they're not going to try to play some game or something like that. And it kind of made the discussions about business a lot easier for me. And so that, that part, I think there is some value to that. Oh, absolutely. And that, and that my issue is Too much how on the much exam. of your study... Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's that's exactly right. And I think it's a, they make it, it's, I don't know, it doesn't matter. But it's a, yeah. the, the bottom line, I think it's important to get more on, but I think the amount of it was just was too much. That's it. Yeah. So 
maybe uh, I, I just have one other question about about your style of investing. You know, it's mm-hmm. value style of investing. How did you mm-hmm. how do you handle the time periods when value underperforms? Does that does that change the way that you invest, or is your investment style value, but actually has you know other components to it, or how did that work? I don't know over the last I don't know, ten years or fifteen years when value had some periods of time where it really struggled. Well, I don't change my stripe stripes, you know, when they're not popular, you know, when you know, when things are not popular. But I think value what value investing means is mis- misunderstood. For a lot of people, value investing means is just buying statistically cheap stocks. I would argue if you just do that, then you just you need an IQ of a you need an education level of a nine year old because all you need to do is to count to kid to ten, just buy any stock that trade has a PE less of ten. And then you become a value investor, you know, based on that line of thinking. No, I think value investing is a lot more than that. It's philosophy. And I, I have I wrote I, I would rather not go into it because I wrote this great essay, The Six Commandments of Value Investing. And it's people can download it, it's absolutely free on sixcommandments.com, where it just basically talk about a philosophy. So value investing is a lot more than just kind of a recipe of buying stocks that actually less, you know, one time is book value less or 10 times earnings less. It's really, it's, it's really a philosophy. And you make adjustments, certainly, you know, like I made adjustments that, that would fit my thinking about businesses, et cetera. And you look at my portfolio, some of the stocks I own would look like, like value stocks that you would expect to see. Some of my stocks look that, you would not expect to see in that kind of traditional value manager. And the only difference is that I think both, you know, both sets of companies are devalued. It's just like some of the companies I'm looking at the earnings, not that just lie in front of me, right? You know, like staring in the face, but earnings are four or five years out. And based on those earnings, those companies are undervalued. I'll put a link in the show notes to that piece that you just mentioned to make sure that anybody that wants to read it, they can get access to yeah. it. Yeah. So, well, now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it and then tell us your story. Yeah. So when you think about worst investment, people think about the stock, like you know, typically, stock, you buy a stock, it declines, you lose a lot of money. That's your worst investment. But the thing is, think about this for a second. But buy a stock and declines, the most it can lose is 100%. If you don't use leverage, right? And you know, I never use leverage, or and I think most people should not use leverage. Okay, so the most they can lose a hundred percent. But my worst investment actually, where I lost three hundred percent. Okay, so how do you lose three hundred percent? Well, I'll tell you how. I probably four hundred percent. So there is a company called EA Electronic Arts, and I bought them in twenty twelve. And if you've been reading my articles for a while, you, you know it depends how long you've been on my list. I've been writing about it, electronic cars, because in 2012, when I was buying it, it was named by Consumerist Magazine as the worst company ever. Like, just you have to understand, when I say this, two years in a row, the company, like two years before that, the BP, after the uh, spill was named, you know, the worst company of the year. And I think a few years before, Philip Morris and one of those companies was, or Altria, was named the worst company, you know. So, the, Electronic Arts made this list two years in a row. And, you know, Electronic Arts makes video games, right? And I think the when I was buying it, 
they had a Sim City game that has some issues. I, I vaguely remember that detail, but they had some Sim Sim City that has some issues. They spent half a billion dollars, five hundred million dollars, on a Star Wars game, which basically flopped. And there was a. They, let me tell you why they actually made it on the cover of the magazine. They made a game where no matter what you do, no matter how you play, you lose. People were outraged about it. Like it just—it's you really, they really had to try hard to kind of piss off the consumers. Did but they, they announce did. that, or that right. just was inevitable that you never could win? I think people just figured it out. Like <laughs> no matter what you do, you can't win. Which is almost like anti-American because the whole optimism has been completely squashed. There's no hope. So anyway, no hope. No, absolutely no hope. But my insight when I was buying the stock was. You have to remember, this is 10 years ago. This is where a couple of things were happening. Number one, there was a transition from people buying games at the store to downloading games. So instead of going to Best Buy to buy a disc or a DVD, you actually went to the website and downloaded, number one. Number two, smartphones became a very important market for video games. I remember making this joke. Like, let me give you this analogy. Okay. Like before smartphones, most people who played video games, especially in handheld devices, were children. Because can you imagine going to your dentist's office and while you went in for your appointment, you're sitting on the Game Boy and playing video games? You would just look ridiculous, right? Completely ridiculous. Now, when you have a smartphone and you're playing video games, nobody cares because they became an acceptable behavior. So that... And obviously, adults have a lot more money than kids do, right? So this huge, and you know, EA had a huge uh, IP, a huge amount of IP. They had a lot of video games. They had a lot of fans, despite you know a few things that happened to, you know, to them in the last previous few years. And my insight was that the market is about to become so much larger, right? And this is and this is important insight. Also, their profitability will get much larger because. When you download a game from their website, you don't have to spend 20 or send a 20 or 30% of revenues to Best Buy. And you have less, no inventory costs, et cetera. So, and if you look at the EA stop line, its stop line was flat. But inside of it, what you saw that the package video game sales were declining and digital video game sales were going up. Digital video game sales came with much higher margin. And that is before the smartphone market exploded. And that was my thesis, basically. Okay, so, but I think we bought the stock at $16. And Andrew, for the next year, like they would have a month of have bad news. Another month of bad news. There was all this, you know, and the stock got to $10. I think we added more to $13. At $10 a year later, I was just frustrated. I was completely frustrated. Then over the next year, so now two, I'm on the stock for two years, the stock basically goes up to $26. And I make a celebratory dance. I just doubled my money and I sell. And the reason I did this is because I was so exhausted. I was so exhausted owning the stock. And that's why I sold. Today, the stock is at $128. No. Okay, but this is the most important part. It's at $128, 
for the right reasons. It's not because of the bubble stock. And you know, and I, and by the way, you can you know you can say it's ten years past. It got to hundred dollars in two years or three years after I sold it. Yeah. And the point I want to make, so the why why what was the mistake? The mistake was when I owned it, it was a very painful experience only in the first year. And I let that pain basically drive my sale. Like in the sense that if I called the look at my thesis, original thesis, it was playing out. The earnings were going up. And I was basically I was basically selling it at depressed valuation, even when I was selling it. But the I wanted to cement the, the gain. So I sold it completely for psychological reasons, not fundamental reasons. And I look at the decision now. And, and another thing is like the like one modification I made to my strategy. I always we always look at earnings four to five years out. If I was looking at the EA's earnings four or five years out, I was probably selling the company five times earnings, like some insane number. And that was it became a very important lesson that now when the company goes through a difficult time and difficult quarters, I try to zoom out. I try not to be that close to it as long as my thesis are still on track. Right. Okay. And that zooming out actually helps me to kind of maintain my sanity. And also, and you also have to remind yourself, I have a portfolio of stocks. There is no way the company I own is going to perform well every quarter. Just every single company in my portfolio. It's just impossible. If that happens, that's just a fluke. You know, it's never happened to me, actually. So it's the worst investment ever because, yes, because it's a, I, you know, I lost basically almost hundred dollars on the table. So I could have had it. I could have ten x my money. I just, I just doubled it. Wow. So how would you summarize the lessons that you learned? Number one, you have to be able to. When you a lot of times when you make investments, it's a, it's a, it's a time of what I call pain arbitrage. You're basically willing to take short term pain for long-term return. And when you do this, you have to, when you go into this, with basically with, with your eyes open, you have to be willing to stick through that. And then you should not, you would, don't want this to impact your decisions. And you don't want it to shrink your time horizon. I think, I think that's, that's basically the most important lesson I learned. Yeah. Maybe I'll, I'll share a couple of things, but I think the, the biggest thing that I think about is that, you know, in my experience, like I've done my valuation well, I've looked at the company, you know, carefully, I've done a lot of work and then buy it and then it falls. And sometimes I just look at it now and I say, maybe I just bought it at the wrong time. You know, like it's the valuations there, the, the, the story's there. It's just that, you know, if I had perfect timing, it may be down another 30, 40% and I should have bought it there. But, you know, you can't always buy it at the right time. And so sometimes I have some portfolios where we use stop losses and we exit. And then later we re-enter that position. And sometimes I've gotten questions about that particular strategy. And I just say, we probably entered it at the wrong time. And now we're re-entering it, thinking it, it is a better time now. What do you think about that? I think, like, to me, stop loss is kind of antithetical with value investing. Yeah. Because when I'm buying a stock, 
I'm basically, there is an assumption that I have no idea what the stock price is going to do over the next six months, or next year. And therefore, I, so okay, I'm going to talk about my book a little bit. Yeah. But Stoics have this concept called negative visualization. So when I buy a stock, I'm kind of imagining now that the stock can decline 30, 50%. And I kind of pre, <laughs> I have a Tesla, I'm going to use so many analogies here, it's not funny. I have a Tesla car. And when, I, when I'm when i going long to drive, and I'm, uh, I tell the car that I'm going to go to the charging station. And it says it's preconditioning its battery. So for the charge, I'm not sure. I have no idea what it's doing. And maybe this is just a gimmick. But it makes me feel like, you know, my car is going to be prepared when it's going to charge. So I think you should, you precondition yourself as well through negative visualization that the stock you bought can decline 30, 50%. And therefore, when it does happen, it doesn't sin as much. And I think that's another thing, you know, I learned from that experience. And, you know, and, and the thing is, you really need do need to have a long-term time horizon. And part of my competitive advantage, I have a long-term time horizon. And I have the tolerance for pain. Well, or that should, or at least I should have tolerance for pain. Well, with EA, I didn't because that the pain I experienced, I shouldn't have experienced it to begin with. But it's also led me to an irrational decision to sell the stock. And it was in a bit of a, you know, sometimes you sell a stock, it goes up for reasons that are completely you know, silly, et cetera. That was a completely wrong, you know, well, in this case, earnings went up a lot since I sold it for the reasons I thought they would go up. So it's everything was playing, play, it was playing out, you know, as I, as I was expecting, I was just exhausted. Yeah, it's amazing how emotion, you know, can even get the best yeah. people down who really know the fundamentals. So I think that's a lesson for the listeners and the viewers is that, you know, you really got to think about those emotional things. And as Vitaly said, you know, I, I think imagining that what am I, I, I need to understand that this stock could fall by 50%. Why am I owning this thing? I should see that as an opportunity, as something, this is, this is the opportunity. And I guess that. And I think another thing is that looking at stocks in the portfolio context is very important. Just realize this is one of 25 stocks I own. And once you look at this, you know, just you got to be careful that not to be, not to stop doing research and not to become indifferent. But at least you, you know, but I think at least when you look at it from kind of in a portfolio context, you realize, okay, this is, you know, I'm going to be as rational as possible. This is one of 20, 20 stocks I own. I think, I think 25 stocks I own. And I think that's going to help you to kind of maintain your sanity. Yep. That's a great point. So based on what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn, what one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Write down your thesis. Zoom out in the short term. If this thesis is struck in long term. When you make some decisions, you know, look at what do you think the company's earnings power is three, four, five years out? Great lessons. So what's a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? I'm assuming it's soul in the game, but is there any other resource besides that? Well, I listen to a lot of podcasts. 
I listen to a lot of podcasts and then, you know, it's in, I listen to podcasts about classical music, about investing, about politics, about macroeconomics. So I think podcasts are, I probably spend about one or two hours a day listening to podcasts, yeah. which is almost like it's a, I start to read a little bit less than before because I think some of the time we now allocate to podcasts. That's so much value in podcasts out there. I mean, I was just listening to your TIP interview and, uh, you know, so much value available and it's free, you know, like it's amazing. And I think back to when I moved to Thailand, I started as an analyst in 1993, that kind of information just wasn't, I I had to, every time I left Thailand, I went to bookstores and I carried suitcases of books back to try to figure out what the heck is, you know, what am I doing? And uh, nowadays it's just amazing how available it all is. Absolutely. All right. Last question. What's your number one goal for the next 12 months? My number one goal for the next 12 months, let me see. I don't set annual goals. I set daily goals. Because when you know, we, we kind of make this New Year resolutions, usually. And at the end of January or early February, we forget about them. So I just wake up every day and I, and I kind of uh, live every day if it was my last day. And so that's, you know, so I just... My daily goal is I want to be kind to other people and just, you know, have a healthy day, happy day, and just, you know, be creative. And there's, right now I'm talking to you, there's my daughter right there, and oh. she's making very funny faces. Yeah. Dad, come and, on, that's, let's that's, go, let's eat, let's do this, <laughs> let's play. That's right, yeah, that's, that's the happiness of my life. There's right the there. joy. So, Well, my daily goal was to have a good interview with you, and I think we've accomplished that. And listeners... There you have it, another story of loss to keep you winning. If you haven't yet joined the Become a Better Investor community, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com right now to claim your lifetime discount. As we conclude, Vitaly, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of A. Stotts Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? Just enjoy life and prosper. That's, that, those are my partner words. Wonderful words. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we added one more person to our mission to help one million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts, saying, I'll see you on the upside.